0: The Old Testament reading is taken from Isaiah, chapter 25, verses 6 to 9. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats, and the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the stroke that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. In that day, they will say, Surely, this is our God. We trusted in him, and he saved us. This is the Lord. We trusted in him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. This is the word of the Lord.
1: From the Gospel according to John, the story of Easter. Hear God's word. They've taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they've put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. May God bless to us the hearing and the understanding of God's holy word. That first Easter morning, in the twilight of dawn, Mary Magdalene stood before the tomb where she had come to mourn. Like so many who have been numbed by the death of one they love, she sought comfort in performing the rituals her society prescribed for those who've buried their dead. The other Gospels tell us she had come to anoint Jesus' body. That they had been laid to rest in haste before the Sabbath began on Friday evening. Nowadays, we call it settling the estate or cleaning out the closets. But every age has found ways for those who are left behind to do something to deal with their grief, tasks to help ease. The way and to adjust to life without that one who has given them so much meaning and so much purpose. And what a picture of overwhelming grief it was. When Mary looked into the tomb, she saw two angels sitting where Jesus' body had lain. Woman, they asked her, why are you weeping? But those messengers from heaven did nothing for her. Woman, they called her. She did not need an impersonal greeting, even from angels. She needed the one who knew her, the one who understood her better than she understood herself, the one to whom she was not just woman, but Mary. Mary of Magdala, Mary whose heart and soul longed for Jesus. Then she saw the man standing there. He was not dressed in white like an angel from heaven. There was nothing celestial about his appearance. She thought he was the gardener, come early on the first day of the week to tend to his springtime chores. And then he said her name, Mary. That's when she recognized him. The Lord said her name and she believed. What is it about a name? A name is the very first gift we give a child. It's the first thing we share about ourselves when we meet someone new. Our names carry with them our identity, our history, our heritage. Things aren't complete until they have a name. The first task God gave Adam was naming the animals. Giving names was part of creation. When God spoke to Moses from the burning bush... God revealed the divine name. Before that, the Hebrews knew God only as an impersonal force, shrouded in mystery. But when God led God's people out of slavery, God established an intimate relationship with them. And you can't have a relationship unless you know someone's name. And so God spoke the divine name, Yahweh, which means I am who I am. Names have power. Just think of the power your name carries for you. When I was in 10th grade, I tried out for the high school basketball team. I worked all summer and through the fall, jumping rope, lifting weights, trying to master free throws and layups. When it came time for tryouts, I made the first two cuts. And finally, the day came when the coach posted the list of those who'd made the team. After school, I crowded around the bulletin board in the locker room with the other boys, anxiously scanning the list for my name. I didn't see it. I studied it a second time and a third, and I was devastated because my name was not there. Not many of us have heard Jesus call our names the way he called Mary that morning in the garden. But many of us have heard him calling to us in the depths of our hearts, calling us to a different way of life, calling us from from things that limit us and hold us back from that life that he sets before us. With all the other things calling out to us, Sometimes it's hard to recognize the voice of Jesus calling our name above all the noise that clamors for our attention. Sometimes it's in our very longing that he calls to us. Sometimes Jesus calls to us by stirring up in us a dissatisfaction with the way things are. He draws us to him by making us long for something We're not even sure how to name. A few years ago, the Wall Street Journal ran a profile of Mary Kay Powell. She stopped going to church when she left home back in the 1960s. She got a job in the movie industry, and faith and matters of spirit were irrelevant to her. Eventually, she made it to the top in Hollywood. She produced movies like Barbarians at the Gate, Harriet the Spy, The Curious Case of Benjamin Button. On weekends, she'd be on a private jet off to a resort in Mexico or Arizona. But along the way, an unease set in, something she couldn't put her finger on. And then it hit her. I'm separated from God, she realized. It was like a faint call. She tried a number of different paths to fill that emptiness. She went to New Age lectures. She studied the Dalai Lama. She took courses on Buddhism at a nearby university. Then a religion professor convinced her to join a Bible study he was teaching at a local church. And that was the beginning of her return to God. She didn't hear Jesus speaking her name like he spoke the name of Mary on Easter, but she felt he knew her, and it was like being recognized by an old friend. I'm going to sound nuts, she said, but it wasn't until she asked God to forgive her for being away that she felt comfortable going back again. I had to say, please take me back. Please help me. Maybe Jesus brought you to this place this morning because he's been calling to you all along and you just need to hear him say your name. You need him to hear you calling you back home. Some people think Jesus would never call their name. They don't fit the mold of what they think people whom Jesus calls are supposed to be like. Some think that because they haven't called on the name of Jesus in years, he's forgotten their name. Some think because they're no longer married to the one whose name they share, Jesus doesn't want to have anything to do with them. Some think because they don't have answers to their questions about God or because they don't know the Bible very well or because they have questions about faith, then Jesus is not going to call their name. Some haven't lived the kind of life they're proud for Jesus to see and they think Jesus would never call the name of someone who's done the things they have done. A few years ago, I attended the midwinter lectures at Austin Theological Seminary in Texas. I had the privilege of meeting Hans Richard Nefermann. He was at the seminary being honored at the 50th reunion of his graduating class. We spent several hours together over the course of three days, mostly at mealtimes. We talked about our churches, his in Germany, mine in the United States. We discussed world affairs. We told about our families and even discovered we had a mutual friend in common. He was missing one arm, but I didn't ask him how he lost it. I had to leave Austin before the closing banquet, so I never really found out why he was being honored. But a couple of months after I returned home, I learned. I received the seminary's quarterly magazine, and it told his story. As a teenager, Nifermann was a member of the Hitler Youth. In 1942, he joined the army and was sent to the Russian front. Traveling on the troop train from Berlin to Russia across the Polish frontier, he saw from the window a scene of human carnage, some alive but dying, reaching out their hands for aid. He was told by a sergeant they were unimportant because they were Poles, probably Jews, not to take any notice. In Russia, he was wounded, and for two weeks he wandered through the barren Russian landscape with only snow to eat. Desperate and close to death, he was taken in by a peasant couple who tended his wounds and prayed for him. The experience of that grace, of hearing his name lifted up to God in prayer, led to a profound change in his life. His arm was amputated, and after the war he spent time in a Russian prisoner of war camp. While he was in the camp, he became a Christian. And in 1950, he entered seminary in West Berlin. A year later, as he was looking up at his reflection in a ceiling light fixture, he lifted up his arm and a repressed memory from that troop train assailed him. He remembered looking out that train window and seeing the wounded and the dying with their arms outstretched for help. He turned to a seminary professor for guidance and he received his life's commission. What you did not do at that time, do now. At Austin Neferman was being honored for his lifetime of ministry dedicated to reconciliation in countries that had been hurt by that terrible war. One of his first projects was constructing a center for adults and children with disabilities. He organized the Action Reconciliation Service for Peace that has projects in 13 countries continuing to build on what had been destroyed. One project of special importance to Nefremann was an international youth center in Auschwitz. In 2003, he and his wife Karen participated in a ceremony for the signing of the first ever accord between the government and the German Jewish community. That name Jesus means he saves. That's how we know him through his name that saves us. When he rose from the grave on Easter, he overcame every power that can defile our names. When we call in faith on the name of the Lord Jesus, he gives us all the power he brought to humankind on that Easter day. He gives us the power of that name that is above all all names. The name of the one who spoke and the world was formed. In Jesus Christ, our name is not a passing breath that's spoken for a brief time and then disappears like the morning mist. Our name is recorded in eternity with him. Whatever your name is, something brought each of us here this morning. Maybe it was a parent's nagging or a spouse's urging. Maybe it was conscience or habit or a deep need to celebrate and rejoice in something greater than ourselves, something more powerful and lasting than anything else in life. Whatever it was, listen for Jesus calling your name. You don't always hear it with your ears. More often, you hear it in your heart, a sense of being recognized for who you are, of being loved and accepted and forgiven, of gladness that you're in the presence of someone who knows your name, knows you. Hearing our name, we turn to him, like Mary Magdalene did. And we call on his name, that name that lifts our sorrows, fills us with joy. In that name, we have victory over death and suffering and everything that can harm us. God has raised him from the grave. And he calls us to himself. Listen, he is calling. He's calling your name. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we lift up your name and we listen to hear you calling us. Whether that call is familiar or new, we give you thanks and praise that you know the depths of our hearts. Fill us today with that Easter joy and that hope of life which is ours through our risen Savior, Jesus the Lord. Through him we pray, amen.